This podcast is sponsored by the Tax Attorney Recruiting Event, or TARE, the largest tax attorney recruiting event in the country. Scheduled for Thursday, March 4th, 2021, this virtual event brings together more than 150 graduate students from top-ranked tax LLM programs at University of California Irvine School of Law, Boston University School of Law, the University of Florida Levin College of Law, and Northwestern Pritzker School of Law, allowing them to interview for positions with tax employers. Through TARE, employers will have the opportunity to pre-screen applications and select candidates with whom they wish to interview. Employers who wish to participate in TARE should visit the-tare.com. That's the-tare.com. Welcome to Tax Notes Talk, a podcast from Tax Notes, the leading source of tax news, information, and analysis. Welcome to the podcast. I'm David Stewart, Editor-in-Chief of Tax Notes Today International. This week, audit selection bias. In 2019, retired IRS economist Kim Blomquist published his findings of regional bias in the IRS's audit selection process in tax notes. He found that eight of the 10 counties with the highest audit intensity were located in Mississippi, and 51% of those taxpayers claimed the Earned Income Tax Credit, or EITC. In the two years since Blomquist's report, it's garnered attention from across the nation, including from federal policymakers to most recently in the New York Times. Tax Notes senior reporter William Hoffman sat down with Blomquist to discuss the findings of his report and what they mean today. Before we get to that interview, Bill, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you, David. Can you give us a bit of background on Kim Blomquist? Well, Mr. Blomquist started his career in tax as senior economist at the Internal Revenue Service. He did some research projects improving compliance with federal income tax laws. He moved on to the tax gap, especially for large corporations and improving tax reporting compliance. After 20 years at the IRS, he moved over to the Taxpayer Advocate Service, where he was an operations research analyst, working on developmental research, distinct from the operational problems that are shorter-term projects. In March of 2018, he officially retired, and from what he told us, he's enjoying his retirement in Washington State. So before we get to the interview, what did you talk about? We talked a little bit more in depth about some of the findings of his research on geographic bias. Specifically, I asked whether or not the geographic bias was also a class and race bias, perhaps, involving people on on low wages and an implicit bias in favor of higher income taxpayers, especially given the fact that the IRS's resources and enforcement are so constrained. I asked about the earned income tax credit as being the heart of the issue, the problem, if you will, and whether or not Congress had a role in fixing that. I also asked him about his definition of fairness, which he had mentioned the IRS is still trying to come up with a measure and a concept of. And finally, I got some rather surprising suggestion about what the IRS leadership might need to be in the future to have a sustained and productive reform of the earned income tax credit. All right, let's go to that interview. Welcome to Tax Notes, Kim Bloomquist. Thank you for inviting me. You worked for the IRS for 20 years and then a few years at the Taxpayer Advocate Service, correct? That's correct, yes. About uh, 20 years for the Office of Research, uh, the first four of those in the Chicago office when they had a research office there. And then the other 16, 17 or so years in, in Washington, D.C., yes. Okay. Give us some highlights from that CV. What have you been doing since? I retired in 2018 after the, my final three years with the National Taxpayer Advocates Office. And then basically, I, like I say, I retired in 2018 and moved out here to Washington State, where it's very uh, rainy and uh, nice most of the year. 
In a 2019 piece published in Tax Notes, you documented regional and racial bias in the IRS's audit selection. This report has been cited by many since its publication, including in the New York Times. Would you summarize for us just briefly what you found? So what I showed in that article was the fact that uh, many EITC claimants live in certain parts of the country. They're not all scattered randomly around the country. And I don't think IRS really historically has been that interested in looking at the uh, geographic impacts of their enforcement policies for various reasons. I think because it's politically sensitive to highlight that. So that's one aspect of it. So basically by, by looking at the geographic location of EITC claimants, one gets an idea also of what the impact of uh, IRS audit policy is. So in recent years, IRS audits have dropped off dramatically because basically they've been affected by budget cuts imposed on them by Congress. But the one area where audits uh, have not fallen as fast is with EITC filers, mainly because these audits are fairly low cost to conduct. They can be done by low-graded personnel. And if you want to look at it from a business perspective, they're fairly lucrative because they get a fairly you know, good high probability of a, of a tax change for these audits. So IRS, I think, is somewhat reluctant to keep cutting EITC audits when they have other budget problems. Could your 2019 analysis on regional bias also be interpreted to reveal a class bias against low-wage taxpayers who happen to reside disproportionately in those counties and an implicit bias in favor of high-income taxpayers who can afford to challenge audits? Yeah, I think one could one could infer that. I, I don't think it's an intentional on, on IRS's part, at least that I don't think that's on their mind that they're trying to intentionally bias towards one ethnic group or class group based on income. I think it's just from a business point of view, it makes sense for them to continue auditing low-income taxpayers because it's reasonably lucrative. But yes, I think that there is a uh, an overlap between the types of taxpayers that they're targeting for this. It's, like I say, mainly low-wage working taxpayers a lot of them are uh, African-American. A lot of them are Hispanic or, uh, you know, what I also find in parts of the country where there's high Native American populations, there's high audit rates, EITC audit rates in those counties as well. So yes, any place where there is reasonably uh, low wage earners that have a high EITC claim rate, the audit rate is also high. So that is not only a, a a concern, I think, from a fairness perspective, but it's also a concern. And I think it's like you, like you mentioned earlier, there, there was a lot of interest on the part of certain members of Congress to find out that many taxpayers in their districts, their states were being targeted at high, much higher rates than other parts of the country. You also wrote in March 2019 that the purpose of your report is to, quote, show that willfully ignoring geographic location in audit case selection does not ensure balanced regional coverage, unquote. What is the goal of balanced regional coverage? Well, just some little bit of context. The IRS says that they're not biased in the way they select audits because, of course, they don't take a geographic location into account. They don't take you know, other racial or ethnic characteristics into account. So they, they somewhat exonerate themselves by saying we're not being biased because we don't do these things. But unfortunately, that doesn't really you know, address the issue. They're, they're clearly, there is a regional bias in the way they've selected audits here. It just doesn't show up in their audit policies. So there's some, somewhat of an implicit bias based in the, the way the system selects cases for audit. So I think that this is something that IRS needs to address in the future. At least they need to be aware of it. And I think you know, members of Congress need to be aware of it and need to 
periodically uh, remind IRS that they shouldn't be focusing all of their enforcement efforts in certain parts of the country to the exclusion, to a large extent, to other parts of the country. I guess I'm wondering how balanced regional coverage relates to audit selection fairness to promote equitable coverage across both regions and income classes and levels. I would say that because IRS is a national agency, right, and therefore they should apply their enforcement actions more or less equally across the country. They don't have to be exactly equally, of course, because there are certain parts of the country that specialize in certain things like agriculture or finance, what have you. And perhaps they run certain special programs that focus on those, uh, those industries, those particular activities. So there needs to be some flexibility, I think, in the way audits are conducted, the kinds of programs are conducted. Nevertheless, for the broad number of taxpayers out there, IRS should really try to spread their audit activities more or less evenly across the country when they can. I mean, certainly there needs to be some exception, but I think they need to focus on that as, as a goal, as one of their fairness goals. I mean, this is something they really haven't defined what fairness really is. But I think if they really are trying to uphold a particular mission statement, then they should try to focus on making audits more evenly dispersed around the country than they have to this point. Well, you also did notice in your research the 2016 GAO report that criticized the IRS for not clearly defining the concept of the measures for audit selection fairness. Recognizing that fairness, so to speak, is a subjective standard, how would you define audit selection fairness? Well, I just think what you need to do is to at least uh, monitor the impacts of your audit policies. And if you're not doing that, and IRS, my knowledge, doesn't really do that, then there's no way you can get a clear indication of you know, who you're impacting, where these people live, and whether or not you should be doing something different, whether it could be perceived as being unfair, whether you think it's unfair or not. So I think you know, it's important for an agency like IRS to be perceived as being fair. And when so many of their audits are focused on relatively low-income taxpayers, concentrated in certain areas of the country, then I think IRS needs to be aware of it and to take into account potentially their perception that they're not being fair, however that's defined. But at least I think that most reasonable people would agree that a, an overweighting of selecting audits from low-income taxpayers, for example, roughly in, in tax year 2015, about 40% of all audits were conducted of EITC claims. No, and they make up much less than that, of course, of all filers. I mean, they're probably closer to you know, 15% of all filers. So they're being selected at three or four times more than their representation in the population. Perhaps that could be perceived as unfair by many people. What elements precisely would a fairness measure include? Balanced regional coverage and what else? What measures of fairness would be both realistic to implement and helpful to taxpayers? I would say that, you know, again, a relatively even distribution of audits among income classes regionally ought to be a consideration, not necessarily, you know, that it has to be exactly the same across the country, because what I mentioned earlier about certain types of activities being specialized in certain regions of the country. So there should be a regional assessment of audit impacts. There should be an assessment of audits by category of AGI, adjusted gross income. So those are, the, those are the, probably the two main areas. Again, I would say because IRS has conducted tax gap studies over the years, they're aware of where the majority of unpaid tax 
originates from, and that's primarily in the top 10, uh, 20% of the income distribution, and primarily from business taxpayers within that category as well. I mean, I would think that if IRS was focused on tax gap, which has always been their agency's mission, then they should really be focusing more business-oriented taxpayers, which I know are more expensive to audit, but IRS should be taking this into account, as well as Congress, you know, in terms of devising an audit policy that actually addresses the problem of underpaid tax. Support for this podcast is provided by Avalara. Since 2004, Avalara's vision has been to harness the power of cloud technology to help simplify sales tax for businesses of all sizes. Collecting tax for the government is something businesses just have to do. But getting the job done efficiently and correctly can be an incredible challenge because tax rules and regulations can be endlessly complicated. It's an overwhelming task that begs for automation. So Avalara built a cloud-based solution that helps ease this burden, and Avalara scales up with its customers as they grow. With more than 1,000 signed partner integrations, Avalara likely integrates with the ERP, e-commerce, mobile payment, and point-of-sale systems you use today. Find out how your business can be sales tax ready at avalara.com slash tax notes. That's avalara.com slash tax notes. Avalara, tax compliance done right. Well, you kind of touch on my next question, which is that the earned income tax credit seems to be at the heart of your analysis. You advise the IRS to institute broader audit selection criteria and maybe a bigger enforcement budget from Congress. But isn't a big part of the problem with the EITC the law itself? I wouldn't dispute that at all. I think it's a very complex law for both taxpayers to follow and for IRS to enforce. One of my first projects when I started with the Office of Research in 1999 was a one of the initial EITC compliance studies. And you know, we found I'd have to go back and look at the numbers, but roughly a third or so, maybe 30% of overclaims of EITC were happening at, in, in the mid-1990s. A decade later, they did another study, IRS did another study of EITC noncompliance, and it was basically the same. So over a decade of auditing and other enforcement activities had little impact on EITC compliance, largely because it's complex. IRS does not have access to the data right away that it needs, particularly I mean, that's this changed recently, but I mean, for many years, they did not have access to the data on eligible children, for example. It's also difficult for IRS to ascertain business income sort of in real time. For, I would say, nearly two decades, IRS has really had made little progress in terms of improving compliance among EITC taxpayers, and to, to a large extent, because it's a very complex and difficult area of the tax code to enforce. There's been some changes recently with the PATH Act of 2015 that requires refunds that are related to EATC and the additional child tax credit to be held until mid-February before they're paid out. And so that gives the IRS a greater opportunity to match reported incomes to any third-party reporting documents that they would receive. We won't know the results of this for several more years until IRS does another tax gap study specific to you know, tax year 2016 and later. So that, that, that could be several more years before we, we hear about that. But I would say, you know, because of the two decades of poor progress that IRS has made, and not for lack of trying, it's just really impossible for IRS to do much about enforcement in this area. It might be time for IRS to even consider or for Congress to consider removing programs like EITC from the tax code and giving it over to other agencies like 
perhaps even Social Security, who's in, been in charge of administering social support for programs for decades, and probably could do a good job with this as well. I mean, it would have to require a, an increase in budget for Social Security to administer this. You know, we'd have to think through how, how to handle it, but I think it would be probably something that would be good for both the IRS and for the taxpayers involved, because you wouldn't be requiring audits of these folks anymore, and, and people could go into their local social security office and file for EITC just like they do for social security payments. It's an interesting idea, especially with the emerging social justice movement and uh, the Democrats now looking at a Congress and a White House of their own. Do you anticipate any movement by policymakers to address the issues that you have identified with the EITC? I certainly hope so. I, I know that following you know, some of these congressional hearings on, on this issue back uh, in 2019, that IRS Commissioner Reddick came out with a very abbreviated audit plan where he said it was best to increase audits of high-income, high-wealth taxpayers. But it's only, you know, fairly minuscule effort there because the budget constraints are still more or less imposed. Now, perhaps with the new Congress, the new administration, that will change and they will be able to make much greater progress. And maybe the IRS can get back to where it was over a decade ago where it was, you know, auditing about 1% of all tax returns as opposed to, you know, like less than 1% now. I think that would be good progress, particularly if they can target most of their, uh, any increase in budget or, again, the main source of the tax gap, which is the high income and business tax filers. The EITC, I think, again, I really think Congress needs to, because Congress has been actually talking about expanding EITC and other programs like this, we need to be aware that doing so under the current approach is only going to exacerbate, I think, the number of filers who are caught up in this compliance uh, web. And I think they really need to consider that, you know, if they're going to greatly expand the number of EITC claimants out there, they're also going to greatly expand the number of, uh, or likely IRS will be tempted to expand the number of EITC audits. So Congress needs to be aware of that, and they need to probably Think about telling IRS that this is something they don't want to do or restructure EITC in such a way, like I say, to remove it from the tax code entirely and try to administer it in some other way. Does the incoming Biden administration need a new IRS commissioner to accomplish any of these goals? You know, I would say I, I leave that up to the new Biden administration. I, I suspect they probably will be looking for somebody to replace the current commissioner. It may not be high on their list of things to do as they seem to have lots of other priorities at the moment as well. But, uh, you know, it may be less important, the commissioner role may be less important than increasing the budget for IRS and then, um, you know, hiring people that they need to hire to do a better job of assisting taxpayers and uh, modernizing the IRS. I know when I worked there, we had always issues, you know, trying to modernize the computer systems and so forth. I mean, that's certainly you know, where they, their focus needs to be. I think the uh, commissioner probably won't be concerned as, or as much a concern uh, in the short run as the budget situation will be. Have you been in contact with anyone from the incoming Biden administration? No, I can't say that I have. <laughs> okay. What's the first advice you'd offer about the IRS and tax administration generally if they did contact you? Basically, I would just reiterate what I've more or less told you today, which is that if we're going to focus on EITC, then I think they need to really consider, you know, what the enforcement uh, implications will be by expanding EITC, which may be a good idea from a social perspective, because certainly, I mean, with the growing inequality in this country, much more needs to be done to help out, you know, low-income taxpayers, low-income households from further 
sliding you know, down into poverty here. And this is something we need to address uh, you know, dramatically in this country. EITC might be part of that. But I think you know, there, there needs to be some further thought as to what the implications are from an enforcement perspective. So I would recommend, if I had the opportunity to say something to incoming Biden administration, I would say, consider restructuring EITC and related credits so that the people who are trying to help out with these things are not disadvantaged by IRS in terms of the way you know, they feel compelled to enforce the tax code. Would you be available to serve in the Biden administration if asked? No, I, I don't think so. I, my, I Currently, my health uh, would preclude that, I think. I'm permanently retired. Fair enough. Good for you. Thank you very much for taking time for us. Okay, well, thank you again very much for inviting me. My pleasure. And now, coming attractions. Each week, we highlight new and interesting commentary in our magazines. Joining me now from his home is Executive Editor for Commentary, Jasper Smith. Jasper, what will you have for us? Thanks, Dave. In Tax Notes State, Walter Hellerstein and Andrew Appleby examine issues arising from the IRS's approval of state and local tax cap workarounds for pass-through entities. Jeffrey Friedman and Peter Hull explore states' attempts to tax digital advertising and the problems associated with doing so. In Tax Notes International, Michael Condev and Olivia Hazam examine Montreal's provincial tax incentives for video game industry developers and investors. Julia Letizia examines Italian tax rulings on conflicts of qualifications. On the opinions page, Marie Sapiri explores recently released proposed regulations on the low-income housing tax credit that are likely to be finalized by the Biden administration. Martin Sullivan argues that if President-elect Joe Biden's corporate tax increases are enacted, the most likely unintended effect would be to reduce tax incentives for domestic capital formation and job creation. And now, for a closer look at what's new and noteworthy in our magazines, here is Tax Notes Federal Editor-in-Chief, Ariel Greenblum. Thanks, Jasper. I'm here with Scott St. Amand, an attorney with a law firm, Fisher, Talsi, Lease, and Ball. We're going to discuss his upcoming January 18th piece in Tax Notes Federal called Prior Supervisory Approval, the Tax Penalty Poison Pill. Welcome to the podcast, Scott. Oh, thanks so much for having me, Ariel. Can you tell us a little bit about your article? Absolutely. The IRS used to threaten penalties against taxpayers to kind of strong arm them into settling. And in 1998, Congress tried to change the practice by enacting Section 6751B1 of the code. That section requires that IRS employees obtain supervisory approval before the IRS makes an initial determination to assert a penalty against a taxpayer. Usually that comes in the form of an IRS letter or notice. In 2020, there was a flood of decisions that the tax court put out on 6751B1. And suffice it to say, the IRS did not fare very well in those decisions. The article itself examines the six full tax court opinions and the multiple other memorandum opinions and highlights the elements of each one that I thought practitioners might need to understand to be able to use 6751B1 as a defense against the penalties. What's interesting is each case builds upon the prior one. And so the article looks at the nuances of each one and kind of holistically gives the practitioners a better idea of how to use it in practice. What led you to write about this topic? So I began kind of a pet project in 
June of 2020 called Briefly Taxing. It combines my three true loves in life, aside from my wife and kids, tax, writing, and sarcasm. The website offers a humorous and sometimes irreverent analysis of the trends and topics in tax law. So when I started it, I had the grandiose idea that I would summarize each tax court opinion that came out in 2020. And as I was doing that, I kept running into opinion after opinion that the tax court published on section 6751B1. And in the back of my mind, I wondered if I'd ever be able to use it in one of my cases. And so sure enough, we had a case a couple months back where the IRS just refused to give up on penalties. So we got a copy of the administrative file and found that the supervisory approval wasn't obtained in time. And after politely citing some of the 2020 cases that I summarized, the IRS finally, albeit a bit begrudgingly, gave up on the penalties. And so after that, I thought that other practitioners might benefit from understanding how 6751B1 works in practice. And that really was the genesis of the article. Thanks, Scott. Where can listeners find you online? Sure. You can find me through my firm's website, which is fishertowsey.com. And also, as I mentioned, in my infinite free time, I run a website called Briefly Taxing, which can be found at briefly-taxing.com, all one word. I'm also on Facebook at facebook.com slash briefly taxing and on Twitter at twitter.com slash briefly taxing. I try to post a new case or article or snarky tax-related observation at least once a day, but being a full-time attorney and a full-time dad sometimes, albeit often, gets in the way. But I would love to hear from anyone. And again, thank you so much for having me on. You can find Scott's article online at taxnotes.com. And be sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel, Tax Analysts, for more in-depth discussions on what's new and noteworthy in tax notes. Again, that's tax analysts with an S. Back to you, Dave. You can read all that and a lot more in the pages of Tax Notes Federal, State, and International. And just before we go, this week we're saying farewell to a member of our team. Acquisitions and Engagement Editor-in-Chief and the main voice of the coming attraction segment, Faye McRae, will be leaving us to pursue a new opportunity. We thank her for what she's done to help build up this podcast, and we wish her well in her new job. That's it for this week. You can follow me online at taxdo, that's S-T-E-W, and be sure to follow at Tax Notes for all things tax. If you have any comments, questions, or suggestions for a future episode, you can email us at podcast at taxanalyst.org. And as always, if you like what we're doing here, please leave a rating or review wherever you download this podcast. We'll be back next week with another episode of Tax Notes Talk. Tax Notes Talk is a production of Tax Notes. You can learn more about us by visiting www.taxnotes.com podcast. When major media wants the straight story, they turn to Tax Notes. Thank you for listening, and join us again for another edition of Tax Notes Talk. Tax Analyst Inc. does not provide tax advice or tax preparation services. Nothing in the podcast constitutes legal, accounting, or tax advice. A full disclaimer is included in the transcript.